Today we'll be discussing reasons to go into comedy and medicine. And then we'll be discussing reasons to not go into comedy and medicine. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, I'll be asking Ali to list his top five reasons why someone should pursue a career in comedy. And then I'll ask Asif to list the top five reasons, if he can get to five, to go into medicine. And then, to be buzzkills, we will also ask each other the top five reasons to not go into our respective professions. Just to be balanced, fair and balanced. That's what we are over here on D versus C. Were you able to come up with the negatives way quicker than the positives? You know what? Um, <laughs> Ali doesn't believe this. And for all the people who know me, I'm actually a positive person. I know people definitely don't okay. think that. I think there's two types of people in this world. I think there's two types of people in this world. People who are surface positive, so happy, bubbly, uh, and then deep down they're just like miserable and mm. but they hide that every day. And then there's people who perhaps like myself, some might say, get annoyed at very superficial things. Ugh, that person cut me off in driving. Can you believe the price of asparagus these days? But then deep down, I'm actually quite happy with my life and my career. Uh, and uh, so anyway, that that's it. But I want to ask you a question before we get started with this. Ali, this is really putting the deep and deep down, by the way, Asif. But that's good. No, I know you're happy with your career. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And, and your own life, your own life, too. But just so many. He's really it's really like hanging out with the human version of Peter from Family Guy. Oh, this really grinds my gear. It's constantly gear grinding. I think it's more like uh what's a larry david from larry <laughs> david but i i i identify with him a lot but honestly i i am um quite happy but okay enough psychoanalyzing uh so this mm -hmm. is gonna be more of a conversation between us i am legitimately curious about what ali's gonna say we have not discussed this ahead of time one thing that's very funny is uh some people who hear indirectly about the podcast great thing i heard a story the other day someone who i know one of my daughter's uh, friend's parents was like, oh yeah, my husband, someone said, oh, you should check out this podcast. So he li started listening to Dr. Verse Committee. He's like, hey, wait a minute, I know that guy. So it was completely, it wasn't like word of mouth through somebody I know who told him. It was like a complete straight, you know, you know what I mean? Like it was no connection there. Do you? Yeah, I like that. Okay. Anyway, I like that. That's, so that's how podcasts grow. That's right. So that's great. But this woman, when she was telling me about it, she's like, I heard you're a comedian now. And I'm like, well, not really. I mean, I'm the, you know, the, the it's Dr. Versus, I'm not you know, the comedian. So do people, I'm just curious, do people ever come up to you, Ali, and be like, oh, here you're a doctor now? <laughs> that would be hysterical. And I would, I, I mean, if anybody said that to me, I'd be like, go check yourself in for some help. You're, you're out of your goddamn mind. That's not, if you think that the last time you saw me, I wasn't a doctor and then something <laughs> happened in my life and now I am a doctor, you're insane. That's crazy. <laughs> but but that's an interesting comment, you know, Asif, and it kind of leads into what we're talking about here today. There's there are barriers to access in, in to becoming a doctor. Comedy, very like very low right. barriers that, to entry. That and, is and in fact, you could be yeah. week to week, you could be not a comedian, and the next week you'd be like, oh, I'm a comedian. Yeah. Now, are you a good one? Are you a performing one? Are you one <laughs> right. celebrated by the world around you? Not necessarily, but you could yeah. technically be a comedian. Yeah, I have to tell people, I'm not the funny one in this uh, situation. But it, yeah, yeah, so it is interesting. Well, I, listen, let's get into it. Okay, Ali, so let's get started with this section. So this is our comedy and entertainment section. So I'm asking Ali the reasons why he would suggest someone go into comedy. And then how about we do all your reasons, the, the positive reasons, right? The uh, mm. uh, first, and then we yeah. can go into maybe the reasons why you might want to reconsider this. All yeah, right, so we good go. news, bad news thing. You want to hear the good first. And you Sorry, have well, five? You have five, I have five, five or? of each. I do. 
I do. I did my work. Okay, good. Okay, good, good. Did the homework. Um, number one reason to go into comedy if you are a creative person, it is a creative world. You're you're if you're creative, you know, particularly as I think about stand up, you get to go deep into the recesses of your mind, explore your thoughts, dig into the challenge of how to make those funny to an audience, right? Like you, you have to sort of be creative, but also up for a challenge because often somebody who's funny with their friends, you can't just take that and put it on stage. And I've witnessed that many times too, where people are like, God, this really killed in my friend's basement the other night, but there's a format, there's a way of presenting it. And I find that to be the exciting part of comedy, taking something that's funny and turning it into stage funny. And it's not always possible. There are times where you're like, oh, God, that really worked in the moment. But sometimes you have to resign yourself to saying, I guess that was a you had to be there kind of moment. But I love that challenge and people who like that. And, and then the challenge continues to be like, hey, I made them laugh for five. How do I get to 15 and 20? And, and then how do I get to 45 minutes? How do I become a headliner? And it's it's challenging and it's also, you know, no two crowds are the same, which is an exciting thing. And also, you know, if you're creative and, and you want to be um, a, a creator of comedy online, that's even more exciting. Like there are zero barriers to how mm -hmm. you can present this. You know, if I think about some of my favorite comedy sketches online, some of these guys have gone out and really like, bought, you know, spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on different costumes so that they can do Spider-Man versus Batman or Latino Spider-Man and, um, you know, do all kinds of like elaborate sketches and pranks. So the comedy world, if you're a creative person, is a, a, is an incredible outlet. I would say that's that's the first thing. Number two is it's low stakes. I actually like the fact that I don't, I'm not responsible for saving somebody's life. Uh, it's, it's pretty low stakes. It's comedy, mm -hmm. right? Nobody dies in comedy. This is a, a saying that some showrunners will have on their wall that, you know, Hey, nobody died today and nobody will die in your job. Just keep that in mind. And mm -hmm. I remember sitting with a friend of mine who's a dermatologist in Montreal and he was telling me, um, this woman came into his clinic and he had to tell her, and this is going back about, you know, I would say 13, 14 years he had to explain to her that the lesion that she has on her uh, on her body is probably most likely an HIV related lesion. You know, and HIV had not come along to where it is now. You know, this was over a decade ago where that was like you were wondering is that a death sentence? What does that oh, mean? Wow. And I remember thinking, my god, that's insane because in my day today, I spent about an hour trying to figure out what sounds funnier, poop shoot or sphincter. That was like, that was my day um, versus his day of telling somebody that she might be HIV positive. So if you like that, that's, that's, that's good. It's, it's, it's low stakes. There's, you know, nobody's going to get hurt. And um, I don't think I'd like to be in charge of people's lives, making them happy. Mm -hmm. For, uh, for a short period of time, that makes me happy as well. That brings me joy. So that's, um, that's another positive in my books. Number three. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want to be in charge of people's lives either. What's that? You don't want to be in charge? <laughs> eh, gosh. Number three, it's an interesting schedule, right? I, I remember I used to live in Chicago and I was an IT consultant and I would skip work and I would go to you know, along the lake on, on, on Lakeshore. And I would always be like, who are these people hanging out, playing volleyball at like 11 a.m. on a Wednesday? Who are these people? Now, of course, they could have also very well been bartenders and servers and journalists and, you know, could have been any number Skipping of Skipping work I as well. I, it could have been, that's who I was. But I couldn't do it with any regularity, you know? Skipping work was more like a wake up mm -hmm. in the morning and then pretend to be like... <laughs> <laughs> my cough is so bad <laughs> boss man um mm -hmm. so you're you know you you, you get into that world you you get into a world of you know real flexibility no two days are the same also right and in stand-up comedy you're in different clubs you're in different cities when you start out you're doing the same routine for people but it doesn't have to be as you grow in comedy you know there's 
fantastic, phenomenal comedians. Mike Wilmot, I remember seeing Mike Wilmot. I hosted Thursday, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. He did five different sets as a headline. Mm -hmm. It was insane. And every time he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in my head, I was like, yeah, sure, you don't know what you're going to. He really didn't know what he, he's just an incredibly brilliant man who has all this, this huge repertoire that he can just access in his mind. Um, so yeah, as you get older in, in comedy, you have this, this flexibility, everything is, is different. And I remember, you know, as, as far as writing and stand-up comedy goes too, you know, you have this flexibility, you have like these contracts, they're short, uh, and then they're over. And then you have some free time before the next contract. Sure. There's stress with that too, but it's, it's interesting work for people who don't want to be tied down to a schedule. I remember mm -hmm. this writer who I really like, his name is uh, Jason Reynolds. I think he's in, in Maryland. And Jason Reynolds was saying he writes every single day and then every single day he watches a movie. He'll either go to a movie mm. or he would like download a movie, kind of like what Asif does for a living. But his movie, <laughs> it was like, it was his reward, but in a way, he turns off his brain to watch a movie, but in a way he's like, I'm well aware that my reward is also a type of work because characters right. have plot, you know, sorry, movies have characters and plots and you know, development and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you can't do that in, in so many jobs. So you can find in this world of comedy, some, some interesting stuff for you to do and some fulfilling stuff to do, not only in your job, but outside your job too. So your schedule is very interesting and allows for that. Number mm -hmm. four, minimal management. I don't really mm -hmm. like being told what to do. I've never been that. I think I, I used to have a joke on stage about this, that I hate being told what to do so much that even when I'm looking at a to-do list that I've written for myself, I'm like, you don't tell me what to do, to-do list. <laughs> no, I wrote it for myself. So uh, in stand-up, you know, the stage is, is, is great for this. Obviously, you just write what you want. You talk about what you want. Um, and on, you know, when I think about some of these YouTubers, you know, you scout, you location scout, you film, mm -hmm. you do like sort of guerrilla style, get friends to do whatever sketch with you, you edit yourself, you post it yourself. No one tells you anything. So if you like not being told what to do very much, you don't want to have a boss. Uh, that can be very interesting. And then in the world of like comedy writing, you have a boss, but typically for a short period of time. So if they're a great boss, mm -hmm. it's a great stint. If this is not a great boss, you can always say, well, this will be done in two and a half months and then I can move on to, mm -hmm. uh, to a different, you know, management mm -hmm. style. Yeah. The final thing, number five, is, um, is that it's not a... In my mind, anyway, it's not a dead-end job, right? It can be an avenue into many other creative worlds. Uh, it, it reminds me of, like, people say, you know, accounting. This is obviously the propaganda that I filled my older daughter with in her mind. Accounting doesn't have to stop at accounting. Accounting, when you do accounting, you know the, you know the structure, the skeleton of a business. And accountants make great everything else, right? You're an accountant, mm -hmm. you make a great... Um, whatever. I don't know any of the other positions yeah, in the CFO. world, but yeah, CFO, COO, uh, CTO, maybe even tech officer, maybe, maybe. I don't know. but accountants ha really understand business. I feel like when you do stand up, you really understand joke writing, joke structure, what it makes, what it takes to make people laugh, unless you have a very unique original style, but that's still you and you from that, you can get into writing, you can get into performing, you know, longer things on stage, you can get into theater, directing, producing, and, you know, if you, if, mm. if, if you espouse, um, if, if you connect with this idea that, you know, those, those bosses, those managers, the ones who started in the mail room and they worked their way up, if those are the greatest bosses, because they understand every aspect of a business, mm -hmm. uh, I think comedy can be, that can be an avenue to, to, to bigger and better things. And it's a great launching pad as well. It can be also a means, you know, not, not a means to an end. It can just be in and of itself, stand up for the rest of your life for performing, whatever it is on online or offline. But, uh, but it can be an avenue to, 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 
greater creative worlds. So that is the list. These are the mm-hmm. five reasons to get into stand-up. It is creative, low stakes, interesting mm-hmm. schedule, minimal management, and it can be an avenue to greater and, and, and uh, bigger things. Okay, so Ali, that was the top reasons to go into comedy. But as we said at the intro to the show, you know, we're all about the positive and negative. So can you tell us your reasons <laughs> to not go into comedy? Yes, one of us is... Uh, much more negative than the other but yeah so it's kind of like a flip it's kind of like uh a lot of what was positive can also be a negative so for example one reason to not get into comedy is the minimal management that's a great thing for some people but it's also like you know people start with like i can drink on the job that's amazing that's actually not a good thing (laughs) it's it's it, it you know when there is somebody telling you what to do yeah Mm -hmm. it can be a massive drag all of a sudden right because you're not used to having anybody tell you what to do but all of a sudden you got it there's club owners who have rules show producers and promoters have rules and mm-hmm. um you know for as a, as a cbc guy we have this all the time where it's like listen we you can't say these words on radio please don't mention hitler those are typically not funny and even if they are it's you know lost on a lot of people because they're listening in their radio and they just hear hitler Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. it's like bad news and so we've had like comedians who you know the punchline is a reference to women's breasts a word you can't see on radio and we're like oh well i guess that entire four minute joke is dead now there's no there's no we can't have the ending so we can't have the joke right Mm -hmm. and the challenge there is a lot of people who are into comedy are not rule followers by nature and, you know, I, I know that you know, there's a few YouTubers that I know of who have TV shows now and, you know, the production companies want them because they have all these followers. But then the YouTubers are like, hey, my life was like scout a location on my own, record, uh, get people there, edit uh, all on my own. And then I made money. So what's with all these like union rules and casting procedures mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, this editing and release and production. So um, you have to know yourself well to, uh, to know how you operate with management. So if you do not want any management, the, the comedy world could be a, a, a bit of a challenge for you. Also, I had said it's an interesting schedule mm-hmm. in the reasons to get into it, but that interesting can become interesting in quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is stand-up comedy in particular can be pretty lonely on the road. You know, if you're booking yourself you can see some of your contacts dry up you know these clubs just we can turn hands they they get bought out by 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 different people and um yes somebody who used to believe in you isn't around anymore or they're just not obliged to give you you know work when they when they used to and if you're a writer in the comedy world you know sometimes you're only it's it's a great schedule because you're working for three, four months and then you're free for a while, but then you also don't have a paycheck. And, mm-hmm. and for those three, four months, great paycheck potentially, uh, although much worse, which is part of the reason that strike is happening. Um, but your schedule is not your own. So there's no like, I'm going to go to the gym every morning, I'm intermittent fasting and this kind of stuff. If you like routine, it's it's uh, I find it difficult to make a, a living in comedy. If you're somebody who who craves routine, can I ask you just to follow up with that? With regards to what about the the actual hours? So when you're up at nighttime, right? It could be a late comedy show. Does that drain yeah. you after a while? Like for me, being on call, if I get called in the middle of the night, it's a lot more. Like I'm tired for the rest of the week if it's just one night. Whereas before, I could bounce back when I was younger. But as you get older. Right? Right. When you start out in comedy, particularly if you're in your 20s and 30s, that's just your life. You're staying up late. Um, it's a rare thing to be home before midnight. And typically, it's somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m. You get home, but you get your rest because you sleep in a fair amount. Now, if you have a partner who is like pretty active in the mornings, these things can be a drain on the relationship. Like, oh man, I left and the house and you were sleeping. I come back, you're not here. And then you come back late. You know, this is why a lot of people were like, how always asking me, how do you do it? How do you and your wife manage this comedy thing? And I was like, no, it's not a hobby. It's my life. Right. She married a comedian. This is what I, this is my job. It's no like, how do you manage? This is, she knew she was getting married to this person, but 
for people who get into it late in life and they're already in a marriage or a relationship and then they get into it, I see, I see that uh, be a struggle for a lot of people. Um, and specifically because of the schedule and, you know, your partner is on, but you're wiped out because you've had a bunch of late nights in a row mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So they do say it's a single person's game uh, sometimes. I'm not Yikes. sure if that's true. I feel happy about what I've done as a married person, but um, yeah, because of what you're talking about energy wise, it helps to be young and single. I think you also have to, this is the third thing here, take a lot of garbage from people. You're not really in control of, um, you know, you, you've got this schedule that's already kind of loosey goosey. And then you're, you sometimes you're like, okay, I'm going to go up at 10 o'clock tonight, but then you go 10 and you get bumped from the show because the person like, sorry, this bigger comedian came in or his friend of mine came in. So you get bumped and Maz Jirani, who we've had on this show as a, um, as a, as a guest, he was telling me a story once about sometimes it would be midnight and there's like three audience members left and you just keep getting bumped and bumped because you're a new comic and nobody knows you or cares about you. And then finally it's time to go on. It's like hardly anybody there. And Maz was like, I didn't care. I had like these jokes that I wanted to get out and I wanted to get on stage. And I viewed it as a, as a challenge. Let me try to entertain these three people who are still here. But he said, but there were a lot of people who were there with him at the time. And they were like, this is nonsense. This Mm -hmm. is complete crap. I'm not, I'm not putting up with this. And they were gone. And he said, a lot of them were funnier than he was. But it's not just about being funny. It's also about like being able to withstand these type mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. Um, you know, crappy situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. censor myself. I said crappy. Mm-hmm. Um, fourth is, you know, I was saying that it's, when I was talking about the good stuff, I mentioned it's low stakes, but then that can be a bad thing too. It's low stakes. You're not saving lives and you're not really changing the world. Even if you're the greatest stand-up, of all time in this day and age, people are moving on quickly to the next things. Like right now there's a guy named Matt Reif who's huge on Instagram. He's having a a phenomenal moment, but let's talk in two years. He may or may not be in comedy. People move on to what's next. There's no, there's no loyalty. There Mm -hmm. doesn't, it's not, doesn't require any loyalty from your, from your fans or from viewers or listeners. Um, Right. So uh, that kind of low stakes is, you're not having a tremendous impact on the world around you. So that might not be for everybody. And finally, why you don't go into comedy potentially is, is this, this prevailing uh, notion that, that comedy owes you nothing, hmm. right? If you're an entitled person who is like, you know, I'm doing comedy, so therefore I should get this. And I've been doing sta- you know, more stages than that person. And I've had uh, my jokes are funnier than theirs so why am i not getting this uh, don't get into this business right just because you put in the work doesn't mean you get the reward mm. comedy owes you nothing and that is the simplest best advice i can give anybody like you have to be ready to see people who are less uh less seasoned than you potentially less funny than you in your own eyes um, get, get like win a, a $25,000 prize on a, on a competition or something. And you have to watch that throughout your entire career. Mm-hmm. They advance here. They get headline before you, they get a TV show, they get, you know, they stand up on television, all kinds of stuff. And you really have to be a little bit Zen about it and be like, that's okay. If they didn't get it, it wasn't like I was number two in line. Right. It's mm-hmm. not like I was, mm-hmm. they didn't steal a job from me. Everybody has their moment mm-hmm. and eventually, mm. um, maybe I'll have mine, but you have to enjoy the journey in and of itself and, and not be focused on the rewards. Otherwise you're getting into it for the wrong reasons. This is a very interesting. Can I ask you, there's two things you didn't mention and I, I thought you were going to mention them and then you didn't. Uh, in the last two things, when you said you had to, you know, take a lot of garbage uh, before uh, when we were offline, you mentioned, you know, eat a lot of g- garbage. I thought you or eat a lot of crap. I thought you meant that literally, like you have to eat like chicken fingers and fries and the thing. I thought it was a health thing. And and, and then I thought, oh, but it's also like staying, you know, you, you're going to do a show. Oh, we got a place for you to stay. You're put up in some like 
crappy apartment with like roaches and stuff or you know everybody talks about sleeping in their car driving so far to sleep in your car have you ever had experiences like that is that enough to discourage somebody from going into comedy you're not making a lot of money at the beginning right you're not making a lot of money for a number of years and yeah certainly you know sometimes the word comedy condo is a uh, huge misnomer you're like oh this is not a condo of any kind this is like a horrible place and i'm I don't even want to think about what happened on this couch that I'm sleeping on prior to my arrival here. Um, yeah, it's, it can be a little bit gross and it's not the cleanest of environments uh, that you're in often and, uh, and also not the healthiest from a drinking standpoint, drug standpoint, or food standpoint. So all those, for me, fall into when I was talking about, you know, your schedule. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's it's great schedule, but the schedule is like, right. is it that interesting? You can't have structure in your life the way you might like, right? And so you get, so for example, there have been times where I've been focused on my health and the comedy club goes, uh, yeah, you get uh, you get a free meal at the club. Uh, before your show and I look at the menu of the club it's like lasagna garlic bread pizza burgers and I'm like that's not really Mm -hmm. that's not what I'm trying to do you know Mm -hmm. that none of that stuff is actually going to help my comedy that's all stuff that is delicious but slows me right down if I'm doing a 45 minute set on stage so then you are all of a sudden like yeah you have to go spend fifteen, twenty dollars on a dinner somewhere. And the club was like, Well, that's your problem. Yeah. We offered you a free yeah. meal. Right. So yeah. it's these kind of things you have to be like that's why there's the good and the bad. Yeah. On the one hand, it's like, hey, free meals. Yeah. Free exactly. Amazing. But, yeah. However, think about what those free meals are and think about where those free drinks get you. The other thing I thought you were going to say in your last point was about uh, you know, comedy doesn't owe you anything. I, I thought it was gonna be more about how you know, with this PC culture where the pendulum is swinging so PC, you can't say anything. I thought I was a bit worried you were going to say you, you should not go into comedy. It's too much. You're going to be um, canceled. You know, if you say stuff, the minefield you have to navigate is, is too much. Well, no? Asif, I'll tell you that, you know, not only does comedy owe you nothing, but my list of reasons to not go into comedy owes you nothing, oh, Asif. No. I'm sorry, my list didn't live up to your standards um that's a much more loaded subject (laughs) i'm sorry my list you know i could have included that i think we did an episode about that we've We've talked talked about about it yeah and we actually probably should uh target it more head-on in in the future we've kind of like brushed up against this this subject but we should probably talk about more head-on yeah i think it's it's a huge challenge but it's part of the it's part of the landscape we're in i'm I'm talking about do you get into it or not get into it so these are people who are starting now so this is the lay of the land it's very different for people like myself who started 15 years ago uh 17 years ago you know listening to russell peters talk about this um at length a guy who started 30 years ago. I mean, he's watched it really, really change. And while he still will sell out an arena in almost every major city in this country, he has so much more hate and backlash. And he's just like, man, just change the channel. Don't come. Mm-hmm. What is, what's so hard about that? And of course, you know, it's a very interesting thing that he said in an interview on CTV recently that the consequence of us coddling children for the last few decades is that they have no coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Coddled adults. And that's adults. why, what's that? They're coddled adults. They're coddled young adults. Mm. So now they're like, uh, I don't like what was just said. So what? I don't know what to do. And it's like, okay, well, report the bully and like, you know, get other people to like side with you to be like, well, that person said something that offended me. And right? he said, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. And that's always been the case, I think, that when people are offended, you have to remind them like, oh, well, that's that's kind of your problem, not our problem as mm-hmm, comedians mm-hmm. but yeah this lack of coping mechanisms is a is definitely something we can go on about for quite some time so to recap my reasons to not go into comedy minimal management know thine self no know thyself 
to thine own self be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you can't work that way, uh, know that. Uh, an interesting schedule that can also be lonely and unstructured and, uh, you know, not not steady with the pay. You eat a lot of garbage. You got to do things that, you know, make you feel a little bit demeaned from time to time. Uh, not just like audiences, but also bookers and, mm-hmm. and, and producers. Uh, low stakes. You are not going to change the world. We have talked about that in this podcast in early episodes as well, about how people believed comedy could change the world. If you look at some of the great comedians who have come, uh, you know, out over over the decades prior and how we still had, you know, the Donald Trumps in power and all these other sort of uh, movements, comedy has not helped any of that. And finally, comedy owes you nothing. So if you're a person who can't handle that, you will struggle greatly in the world of comedy. Time to talk about medicine, huh? Mm-hmm. I assume you have a list of some kind, Asif? I do have a list. And it better be up to my standard. Yeah, I hope you don't have any comments <laughs> about my list. Yikes. <laughs> Okay, so we'll start off the same way you did. We'll start off with reasons to go into medicine. Again, everybody relax. These are my personal beliefs on why I would encourage people to go into medicine. You may disagree. And just hang on because a lot of these, as Ollie uh, had alluded to in his section, some of these positives have a corresponding negative and so you know you, you have to balance these things out so we'll we'll get to the negatives i'll try and stay with just the positives so the number one reason and again ali and i have talked about this before on the podcast and offline the number one reason to go into medicine is if you love the study of medicine and the human body disease processes and you are fascinated by that that's the reason to go into it because that will be your reward every day you can't always save everybody you can't always make people happy there are frustrations which i'll get to in the in the in the in the negatives side mm. but this is it if you love what you do and you love this figuring out what's going on so i've mentioned this before for neurology i consider myself Aliyah detective in neurology. That's what we actually are. And uh, sort of like Columbo or uh, who else? Batman. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) The Dark Knight detective. So because you have a list of symptoms that, that comes up and then you need to try and figure out what's going on keeping in mind the individual person in front of you, whether it's a baby, child, or, you know, for adult practitioners, adults, and then trying to put that all together to kind of figure out what's going on. And there's an art to that, that, you know, you can Google stuff online, you can uh, use AI. There's still something at this point in medicine where you need to have the expertise, the patient in front of you, and working through this problem-solving method. So that's what I really like, but it doesn't have to be that, right? Some people are like, I, the diagnosis is fine, but that's not what I'm interested in. That's what surgeons are. Surgeons, they do diagnose people, but what they're like, what can we do? What's the next step? The next step is actually doing something. For them, it's surgery. Other people, it's uh, like an oncologist or a radiation oncologist giving chemotherapy or radiation therapy to help try and treat somebody's cancer. There are different ways to kind of look at it. Pain specialists who want to intervene to help with people's pain that they're experiencing. So there, there's there's so many ways to do to do that and um i just think it's a bit more rewarding than you could you could say well ask you can do that by just becoming a phd in in some sort of biomedical science right i'm just gonna i I like that i want to study the human body i just find it's more rewarding uh because um of the interaction with, with with other people and and the patients and then your colleagues. So for me, the love of the study of medicine, if that is your primary motivating factor, you will never be disappointed um, in work. It's a great first one. I think I, I listened to a basketball player talk about something similar recently. Chris Paul was talking about you have to love the the process, the whole, mm-hmm. you have to love practice. You have to love just the game because there's every single team loses except one in the grand scheme of things. So if you're in there just to win and, and for the accolades and for the rest of it, right. The, the glory, it's like, you're, you're just going to be so sad so often. 
Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so much better exactly. to be in love with the entire process. process yeah, it. yeah. And again, we're going to get to some limitations with the process, but the second reason is job security, which seems like a strange thing to be saying about medicine. And there are a couple caveats with this, but in general, you could probably find a job somewhere in medicine if you're a doctor. It may not be where you want to practice. I mean, you may have to leave Canada. Some surgeons, you know, very hard for them to find jobs because they don't. There's no operating room available availability for them. So, they, sometimes you have to leave the country, even or leave the province or leave the city that you live in. So you may not be able to get the job where you want to live in, say downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver. You may not be able to find that, but you probably will be able to get a job somewhere. It may not be ideal. So there is this idea of job security and this idea of being your own boss you don't some again some specialties you cannot really be your own boss like if you want to be like a pathologist it might be hard to run a pathology lab on your own independently but for the most part if you're a family doctor and you can join a family practice you can work in a hospital or you can just say i'm setting up my shingle i'm a, a family doctor i'm running my own practice i'm my own boss and as you implied ali there are pros and cons to that there's expenses but but you have that ability and um and i think sometimes that's not appreciated as much when you compare us to other people in other professions where there is no job security right and you gave a good example in comedy or people who come from abroad Mm -hmm. with medical degrees in hand and then those are not right. recognized. Right. Those people hate you right now for saying it, the words jobs. Well, exactly. But, well, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, they also could have probably got a job in the country that they were in. I don't know if they, but there may be other reasons why they had to leave. But but, but you have a good point. We are very lucky. A Canadian or American medical degree is extremely portable to other places, and the reverse is not always true. So, mm-hmm. again, maybe this caveat should be more job security in um, Canada. Canada or or high resource countries. But again, I mean, one thing that people are always going to be doing is getting sick, right? <laughs> that when you think about the overall job security, it's it, we're not there yet where nobody's getting sick anymore, right? So mm-hmm. and and, and they and they will grim. they will need a, a doctor or or healthcare professionals at some point. The third is again I'm, I'm comparing this to something Ali said before is actually making a difference, right? A lot of professions, you know, the what's the worst thing that's going to happen right um you know in ours somebody could die or or and and you have to be a bit careful about this making a difference because a lot of people interpret making a difference with saving a patient or curing a patient but that's not it sometimes you have to deal with patients who have an incurable disease and i and i I do this all the time and a lot of my colleagues do or some of my colleagues are in palliative care they're easing people into the dying process or and trying to alleviate their symptoms uh, you know uh while they're going to this final destination so with those you could you're not curing them necessarily and you may not even be healing them but you are you're helping people in, in that respect as well and that's something that you have to keep in mind when you when you're doing this we cannot prevent death in everybody we cannot prevent suffering sometimes but we can try and minimize that as much as possible right the suffering aspect and so that that's a, that's a thing and one of my buddies who's a, is a very uh, successful business guy uh you know we were talking years ago and he's like why, why thank you us if i do regard myself as a no <laughs> anyway it's it's uh, not even somebody else pretend for a second yes uh, and and he said you know he was lamenting he's like you know what i i sell x number of you know widgets or whatever he doesn't sell widgets but you know i sell widgets. this what a contemporary reference that's also. right that's what i know in business school they call them widgets when they're talking about a that was in 1993 business. but anyway yeah, i yeah, think yeah. they've Guns and butter and widgets. I think that's that's pretty dated. Is it? That, what do I know? I don't. Yeah, I don't so. know. I mean, I certainly haven't gone to business school, unlike you. But anyway, um, my point is, is like you know, all we do is sell this. I sell this. I sell this. Like you're actually actually making a difference, and I think that's important. But again, there's caveats to all this. You have to interpret what making a difference is to you. And sometimes it's just explaining a diagnosis to a family, being there with them uh, through through the process with, with a patient or a family. So that's number three. And the fourth is related to that. It's actually interacting with patients. And I've said this before to Ali privately and on the podcast many times. I love, love, love interacting with, with patients. Um, 
and the kids that I see, it's the best part of my job. I love seeing patients and that hopefully should bring people joy. Yeah. Oh, cause some of you people be rude sometimes. Yeah, of course, you know, that happens in everything. And it's usually, of course, not the kids. That's very uncommon. It's, it's usually the parents, but it's not even usually the parents. It's such a, it's just a small minority whenever that happens. But again, you empathize with them. They're going through a difficult time. Obviously their child is sick. So you try and again, help them and guide them through it. But the best part of my job is every day seeing patients um, and it makes up for the other frustrations that you get. Uh, so I hope people who really get something, who go into medicine really get something out of interacting with patients, or if they don't, perhaps they choose a field which has less patient interaction. So they're getting some of these other things out of medicine, but maybe if they don't really like interacting with patients, say in radiology or uh, pathology, uh, then then they've chose something that, that, you know, they don't have to do that as much. I would say for me and most of my colleagues, this interaction with patients is a, is a huge thing. And we should remind people, in case you're a first-time or a newer listener, Asif is a pediatric neurologist. That's right. why he keeps talking about interacting with children. That's not everybody's medical reality. That's obviously. right. That's right. And usually, it's obviously for most adult physicians, it's a one-to-one -one with a patient, maybe their family as well. But but hopefully, people really enjoy that too. And especially these these my friends who are family doctors or general pediatricians, family doctors who see people throughout their lifespan. Right? You could see them from kids to adulthood. Maybe if you practice long enough till they're an elderly person. Uh, and uh, and same thing with pediatricians. See somebody when they're born up until when they turn eighteen. There is something really good about that. I'm actually getting to the point, Ali. It's going to happen, I think, next year while I have been practicing for 18 years. So there will be some patients who I saw as a newborn baby in the neonatal intensive care unit who are about to turn 18. I have, I think, one I or two it. coming up next year. And that's that's like a big thing for me. It's a huge milestone to see these kids. Like, imagine, right? Like from the, when they were a newborn baby to now they're, you know, they're going off into the world. So pretty exciting. And the hope is that they don't see you walk over and kick you in the shin. <laughs> that, that, that's, like, screwed me up, doc. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the last reason uh, I think to go into medicine is this idea of constant learning and you never i think want to go into a field where you've kind of mastered it or you've mastered 99 percent of it early on because i don't know like there, there has to be this desire for constant learning and again i'm not saying you don't get that in other fields i'm sure you do but i would want that for people who want to pursue medicine they would want to have this quest for knowledge and especially i mean neurology is the is the, i think one of the pinnacles of this right there's so much we need to learn with neurology uh with regards to genetics with regards to how the brain works uh we still just know uh, such a small amount of this and and every year we learn new things uh and it's amazing you know the field has changed in so many ways just since i started practicing which like i said is just shy of 18 years ago so I don't know, I, I really, I really, I think that idea of constantly learning and, and it, it, should, it may be intimidating to some people, but that's, the, that's another one of the best parts of it is, is co constantly changing, constantly learning. You don't want to, like I said, be an expert, you know, after a couple of years of practicing something, right? So then Ali, just to recap my reasons for encouraging someone to go into medicine, if you love the study of medicine, human biology, disease, job security number two number three actually making a difference in someone's life uh or the patient or the family and number four interacting with patients that one-on-one -on -one connection and then the fifth reason the idea of constantly learning in your field yeah no okay <laughs> Big fan. I'm a big fan, obviously. All right. So let's talk about, uh, why not to go into medicine. Number one, you're dumb. Huh? I know that that stopped me from going in. Um, well, um, let's say reasons that what you might be discouraged from, from doing it these days. The number one thing is definitely what we 
call structural limitations. The problems with trying to administer medical care, and I'm going to limit this to to North America just because that's my perspective. There are many, many more extreme examples in other countries, you know, um, when you have places in, in Africa where your your catchment area for a hospital can be 50 million people. You know, it, it is... And, and and some clinics will see uh, in some countries a thousand people a day in a clinic. Like these, these are very extreme resource limitations. So there's that as well. But even just practicing in the U.S. and Canada, and, th and there are different things. But it, the idea comes down to finite resources and how you distribute those. It's a bit different in Canada. It's because our our healthcare system is provincially funded. So and we need there's a there's a, there's People are, are living longer with diseases. There's newer treatments for diseases. Uh, these costs have to go up. Uh, and because of that, we need more money in the healthcare system. But when you're a publicly funded healthcare system like we have, like the UK has, there are going to be constraints with that. The U.S. is a slightly different thing because it's, you know, they spend the highest percentage of their GDP per capita on healthcare, but yet they don't rank highest in, in, in the quality of healthcare delivered in the world. And what's the reason for that? Well, you have a lot of, uh, of insurance companies and these and HMOs and, and these kind of uh, this barrier between patient care and physicians and the negotiating all that physicians have to do all the time with um, with with HMOs and getting coverage people who don't have insurance, people who have limited insurance, you know, arguing with insurance companies about doing tests, treatment, et cetera, for my colleagues in the U.S., that that I think is a very, that weighs on them a lot, I think, and I think it's certainly a source of frustration at the very least. And so the, these are things that, that, that are difficult, and it is a bit uh, disheartening, I think, to say the least, uh, when we see, in, in, you know, this need to argue with either governments or insurance companies all the time to advocate for patient care, that is a, that is a tough thing. And, and these limited resources causing for us in Canada long waiting lists, it can be discouraging. And sometimes it makes you think, am I actually making a difference, right? That's the mm -hmm. problem is it can impinge on some of those reasons to go into medicine. Number two is related, and it's, it's about work-life balance. And again, we've talked about this on the uh, show. We have some episodes on physician burnout from last year, which you guys can check out in our archives. But it's an issue. And so, of course, this is contributing to the, the limitations and our dwindling resources from uh, my first point. Because if people are leaving their profession... That's going to exacerbate wait lists. We have we talked with the gritty nurses when they were on our podcast, right? About uh, people leaving the nursing profession and 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 the problems with that, and 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 them looking for other things and wanting to leave. So that we have a uh, low amount of nurses in the workforce, right? But we need nurses to for the healthcare to survive. So this work life balance is tough you know it's it's hard sometimes for people to turn off you know like it's is it may be easy for people say who have some other jobs to like you work 9 to 5 you get home turn it off now you can concentrate on other things it is tough you know last week i was on call for the full week and i'm still thinking about my patients and ch checking in with my colleagues to see how they're doing and, you know did everything kind of go okay what's the next step um so it's it's harder to turn it off and so it bleeds into your into your home life and and your off time right the idea about are people better off in medicine you know in terms of a work life balance like again i have some a lot of friends who work for the government whether they they work for the municipal government the provincial or, or state government in the us or the federal government and a lot of them have the proverbial golden handcuffs right but they're talking about retiring in the next five to ten years and i'm like oh that would be nice <laughs> nice to do and uh, and then you're like are they better off because you know um and I'm, not, I'm not sure about that so anyway i i think about that sometimes the answer is yes <laughs> that, that, that's right <laughs> um and 
the other thing is is with regards to to family life and and this work life balance and i think there's a whole other aspect of this which I, I would like to get some some other people on the podcast to talk about which is this idea of women in medicine and how they balance because there are much more pressures for women in medicine in terms of balancing the, their their home life and work life uh versus men that i think that's just a fact of life and i see that every day my wife as you guys know is a is a physician and so i i think that that's a that's a big thing that we need to keep in keep in mind as well and and if and it is a reason to to think twice about going into medicine this idea of work-life balance because the work really does bleed into your home life unfortunately another reason to really um dive into number one the the, the number one reason to go into it which is loving right. the study that's of right medicine, that's right, right. that's kind of it's it's so appropriate that you would give that reason first because i think it has to be the overarching thing. right it goes back to all of this and so you know my third reason to not go into it is, is is again something you have to balance which is the idea of debt right debt we all we know post-secondary uh education debt can be crippling for some people but when you're talking about go doing an undergrad doing medical school coming out with debt and we're that's even in canada you know you you you'll have a significant amount of debt but we're but the u.s where you can easily come in with five hundred thousand dollars plus in debt and that is a huge thing and the problem with that is it affects all these other things this work-life balance because i've met people from the u.s who, you know, just chatting with them and they're like, oh, I'd love to like kind of scale back and kind of move to a small town and do all, you know, but I can't do that. I need to make money because I have this huge amount of debt hanging over my shoulders. Then you have that debt plus buying a house, which is something that everybody, you know, faces with housing prices going up and inflation. You become handcuffed because of this, this idea of debt. So, you have to really consider that and 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 how are you are you going to be able to live with this because again how, is that going to balance out your love of, of, of medicine and seeing these patients i don't know the other reason which is similar is related to money if you think that you want to go into medicine to make money i strongly suggest you pick another profession because again you will come out with a large amount of debt um, which needs to then be paid off. In most cases, if you're lucky enough to have family that you know and, and generational wealth that pays for that, great. That you're very lucky. But otherwise, you will need to be paying that off. Um, and so, even if if physicians do make a lot of money, you know, in the grand scheme of things, are they better off than someone who has a government job with a paid pension, which we don't have, and um, uh, benefits and things like that, which again, we don't have, we have to pay for all these things. I don't know. I think you really need to do the economic calculations. Don't get me wrong. I think physicians, it's very, they're not going to be poor, but I don't think they're going to be filthy rich, which may be, have been the perception of physicians years ago. The fourth thing is administrative demands. So one thing that has been noted, again, we talked about this in our burnout episodes, is there is increasing burden of putting things onto physicians that, that you know, administrative things. So uh, making sure that um, uh, th uh, tests are ordered in a very specific way. We talked about electronic medical records um, and, and just pushing a lot of this paperwork uh, for even though it's done electronically often onto physicians because often organizations can't find anybody else to do it they don't want to pay for more administrative assistance so they download that onto physicians right contrast that with um lawyers you know um my sister-in-law is a very high profile lawyer and i remember her telling me once uh you know she was talking about photocopying or or, or, or uh stuff because like I, I said i had to like photocopy and print some stuff out she's like as if, if i was, was printing out stuff from a printer you know her supervisors or partners would be like what are you doing this is, again when she was more junior uh get back to work like you you're billing you should be billing clients and making us money you shouldn't be photocopying we have people who do photocopying for you and can do this administrative work that's not your job your job is to do this but it's very different in medicine it's like it, it's like this stuff just keeps getting downloaded more and more to physicians because again when you have in the u.s these hmos trying to make money or in canada uh, government organizations trying to save money 
right? Then it's just easier to download this to, to physicians. And it sounds like I'm complaining a lot, but honestly, it has really increased a lot, this this administrative work that is not compensated, right? That's the thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so in other words, we could be seeing patients and could be doing uh, other things, but instead you're doing this, this, this paperwork. So it is a bit of a... Um, uh, it, it, and I agree, everybody has paperwork to do with their jobs. Honestly, even I'm sure you do, Ali, right? Whether it's your taxes or whatnot or organization uh, for your show. Refuse to do it. <laughs> That's right. It just piles up. That's a huge pile behind Ali in, in, his, uh, in his study right there. Uh, but... Yeah, so I know everybody has it, but but when you think again, what physicians could be doing with their time again, you use that example for lawyers. Lawyers should be talking with clients, billing, making money for themselves or their organizations. We should be seeing patients, right? But this is being taken away. And the last thing is uh, again something that we probably should devote a whole episode to is this idea of malpractice lawsuits and complaints and how you deal with these. Malpractice lawsuits are uh, more common in the U.S. than in Canada, but there are very, very significant ones in Canada, or perhaps just patient complaints. This idea of patient complaints, dissatisfaction, um, it doesn't happen uncommonly, and it can be very um, devastating to people, you know, whether it's a complaint, and, and sometimes complaints are unfounded, sometimes they're actually very, very legitimate. And sometimes it's due to medical error or negligence. Other times it's not, but it can be very draining. And the idea that people could be pulled into a malpractice lawsuit or sometimes even public complaints, right? If patients and families go to the press, that can be very, very draining. And then it, it can almost negate all the other stuff that, that we've talked about in terms of the positive, right? If you have that. And again, you could say, yeah, but if you have 100 patients who are happy with you and one, complain, one complains, you know, you're obviously going to be much more concerned about that one complaint versus the 99 people who were very happy with the care you provided. But that's just human nature, right? Like it's you, Ali, when you're in a comedy club, right? That one person who's not laughing. You mentioned this before, right? Like, why are you focusing on them? Why don't you focus on the 99 people who are laughing, right? But, yeah, you know, obviously it's a, it's a different situation. But uh, again, and sometimes they're minor, sometimes they're major, but that can certainly um, impact people's desire. So those are the these five reasons that I have there, Ali. So again, to recap, structural limitations and dwindling resources. Number two, work-life balance. Number three, debt. Uh, and uh, and this idea of you probably won't make, you won't be as filthy rich if you go into medicine. Administrative demands ever increasing. And then malpractice lawsuits and complaints, reasons to perhaps not go into medicine. But in the end, Ali, um, you know, would I do anything different with my life? I wouldn't. In in life in general, you know, you have to minimize in your work the things that frustrate you, that make you do, not like going to work. You min, try and minimize those as much as possible and maximize the things that make you happy. I think this advice is best for people thinking about going to medicine so they can go into it with a clear head. Uh, it's tough if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my God. Uh, none of those uh, reasons to go into medicine resonate with me, and I all those reasons to not go into medicine res resonate with me. Like that would be, I would feel very bad for those people because, um, again, maybe they're trapped, right, because of this idea of debt and, and work-life balance. But that, you've that, done them a favor as well, right? That's uh, better to know now. Yeah. Right? The see your way out of the trap somehow yeah. rather than five, ten years into the profession. You're helping people, Asif. Thanks. Your negativity is helping. What? Yeah. What? That's our episode for today, Liz. So what you guys thought? A bit of a different episode that uh, Ali and I decided to do. Uh, give a little insight into our perspectives on comedy and medicine so let us know what you guys thought dr v comedian at gmail.com dr v comedian twitter facebook instagram we are everywhere ali i just want to make sure i pointed out to our listeners that 
we're going to be taking a month off for the month of August. So a bit of a, a recharge, reset, make sure Ali and I have time uh, with our families. And then we will be our back. We will be back with uh, uh, brand new episodes in um, the beginning of September. I don't know if we're going to call the all the episodes before we had season one and that's season two. I don't know, because season one was like a two and a half year season. So it seems a bit strange <laughs> to, to do that. But anyway, I don't, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. But just so you guys are warned, if you don't see new uh, episodes popping into your uh, feed, who knows if, if something really newsworthy comes out, we'll... Um, we, we, we might cover that, but otherwise, uh, expect August. Asif has a rash. Let's talk about it. Or did you mean in the world around us? And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice, as I will do for my rash. Hmm. Thanks for listening. Bye. again i kind of sidetracked you oh yeah yeah sure sure i love that you whisper as though the audience can't hear that part when you whisper you know you could just edit it out instead right are they listening mm-hmm.